So I want you to read with me the first, the uh, three verses of this hymn that uh, I really love. And verse 3 begins, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you so dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. (laughs) Oh, hardships are an inevitable part of our life as Cooper experienced and so with us. The job that we got didn't go as expected or we might not have received it. The coworker who is constantly nagging. The kids who don't sleep at night. The son or daughter who grew up in your home but then went away astray in their faith. The spouse who is suffering physically. The child who needs special care. Often things in life do not go our way and ultimately it is because we are not the center of our life but God is the center of our life. Because there is a greater actor behind the story of life, and his name is God. He moves and maneuvers in our life to produce in us and take us to places we wouldn't want to go to accomplish his purposes. He moves in mysterious ways, is what Cooper would say. And all that being said, either we can can complain or be discouraged with the hardships of life, and it's easy to do so. Why so? Because we live in a world of comparison. The root, the root issue of discouragement and complaining is because we look too often horizontally and not often enough vertically. We look at people around us and we ask the question, Lord, why is this going on in my life? Why not in someone else's life? You see, we were created to imitate God and that imitation that is part of who we are, we should look to constantly imitate Him and not the people around us. I read... A while back, that a study on Facebook has shown that Facebook has led to widespread demise of marriages, discontentment with current life, and a longing for what might have been. What could have been, right? You see, in this psalm, the author turns our attention to God. And friends, we must need to be refreshed by this. Our gaze should always be heavenward because there is one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is Jesus Christ. And so this whole psalm, Psalm 116, is layered with the person and the work of God. So let's read the psalm together. Open your Bibles to Psalm 116 and follow along with me or follow along along in the screen. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? 
I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservants. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Father, we thank you this morning that we have your glorious word. May you speak to us this morning clearly. May you challenge us and help us to grow. May you turn our eyes and our attention now to Christ. And may we be encouraged because your word does not go forth void but comes but brings a lot of fruit in our life. I pray, Lord, that I would also speak words that are truthful. May you use me as your mouthpiece this morning in Christ's name. Amen. My desire is that with the psalmist going through the fires of life, knowing that God has his hand on a thermostat, we come out on the other side asking this question of verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord or what shall I give to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? You see, this passage is outlined in four sections. It begins with the love of God in the first four verses, the character of God in verses 5 to 7, the work of God in verses 8 to 11, and finally, thanksgiving to God, verses 12 to 19. It is a prayer of gratitude. It is a psalm of thanksgiving. And the idea here is that this is not a private matter. There's two times at the end of the psalm, in verses 14 and 18, we read, I will pay my vows in the presence of all his people. And so the psalm was used in public worship to give public thanks after personal emergencies. And note that this psalm is very personal. See, over 30 times, I, my, and me are mentioned. The psalmist was walking with the Lord through the struggle of his life. But personal life is not so personal when we live as the body of Christ. When one member hurts, all are hurting. When one rejoices, all rejoice. And so we could use the psalm in our church after someone battles through cancer and survives, goes through a hard recovery after a car accident, repairs their marriage, sees their wayward child coming back to Christ. And the psalm is more specifically in the context of the psalm about a man who was near death. In verse 3, if you look, it says, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. And in verse 8, he says, For you have delivered my soul from death. And so the title of the message is, What shall I give to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Just verse 12. That is the question I want us to meditate on this morning. And my proposition is, from trials to thanksgiving, what you don't expect hardships to accomplish in your life. From trials to thanksgiving, what you don't expect hardships to accomplish in your life. Not only does life not go as we expect, but trials also produce in us something we don't expect either. There are four fruit of the trials that we see here. They increase, first of all, your love for God. They secondly remind us of the character of God. They display the work of God and they produce thanksgiving to God. So we'll take it the first one, one at a time. First, they increase your love for God. Trials increase your love for God. And here's the key idea here. The psalmist begins, I love the Lord. 
He begins with this declaration. It's the very first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second, just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He is adoring and he's exulting in God. And this is the ultimate goal of our life, is it not? Now, if this is the ultimate goal of our life, and God is constantly working and orchestrating things in our life to accomplish this goal that we would love him more. And this is what the psalmist came to as a conclusion. Lord, I love you because through these trials of my life, you have done something glorious. How else do we grow in our love for God if not by walking with our good shepherd through the valleys and the mountaintops? The dark, the hard seasons of life when God proves his faithfulness to us again and again. You see, for the psalmist, the snares of death were near him. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of him. God was taking him to places he wouldn't want to go to accomplish what he couldn't do on his own. The snares of death, they were all around him. They were encompassing. And Sheol, the grave, was laying hold on him. Both of these parallel phrases are a picture of a hunter with nets trying to capture its victim. In other words, the psalmist could be saying, I was always in danger of dying, or I was filled with fear of dying, or I was afraid that I would die. Now, this vivid language emphasizes how desperate the psalmist was. This was not a light matter. This wasn't something that you just wake up the next day and it is gone. But this is a heaviness of a soul. This is the aching of the heart. This is the depression of the mind. The Lord, would you take me now, prayer? Because I don't think I can go on any longer. There is no room to breathe, no room to grow. Have you been here before in your life? Now, what is there left to do in this situation? I always say, I love the Lord when he brings me into these moments. Because when I am against the wall, there's only one place to look, and that's upward. And this is what the psalmist does. When we have exhausted all the books, the advice, the substitutes to fix our issue, we cry out to the Lord. In verse 4, we read, Then I called on the name of the Lord, the name of God, representing the character of God. And I said, Lord, deliver my soul. And then we know that God answered because he heard my voice, because he inclined his ears. I want to introduce a cycle that we see in the psalm. And the cycle goes something like this. The hardships of life lead us to prayers because of our state that lead us to answer because of God's character that ultimately lead us to thanksgiving because of God's acting. You see, the hardships, of, hardships are there because of our life. Prayer is there because of our state. We're weak. Answer, we get an answer because of God's character and thanksgiving because of God's acting. You see, the psalmist prays because he understands that he is dust. He understands he is weak and helpless. Look at verse 6 with me. The Lord preserves the proud, self-sufficient, non-praying. Is that what the verse says? No, the Lord preserves the simple. The simple who understand their frailty and their need. Those who are unable to take care of themselves. The infants who are in need of their mother. This is who the Lord takes care of. And I realized as time passes, and as I grow older, I feel like there's only one person who forgets that there are weak and feeble in the need. That's myself. 
The Lord never forgets that. He knows our frame. He knows we are but dust. But I seem to forget. Humanity seems to forget. And God is continually reminding us through prayer, you need me. So you see, God knows this. We have plans and purposes for our life that sometimes we want to accomplish without God's intervention. But if God loves us, he will bring us back to himself. And so through this phrase, we come back to the reality that God is the greater actor in our life. I want you to see God in this psalm, and I'm just going to share just a few verses. In verse 12, obviously, for all his benefits or God's benefits to me. In verse 1, because he heard my cry. In verse 2, he inclined his ear to me. Verse 5, gracious is the Lord. In verse 6, the Lord preserves me. He saved me. The Lord dealt bountifully. In verse 8, you have delivered my soul from death. God is doing this work. And so, just like in the life of the psalmist, as I think about this psalm, I think of many other stories in the Bible. And we're going to look at a few of them. I think of Moses living in the wilderness, leading a grumpy group of people for 40 years in the desert. Initially, he didn't want to speak, couldn't speak. He was fearful and just a shepherd. And God was preparing Moses for 40 years to teach him that he was nothing, to then go to a place for 40 years where he was teaching God's people that God is everything. You think of David, a shepherd boy who is anointed to be king, yet Saul pursues him trying to kill him. The nearness to Saul and playing the harp and then the distance because the animosity that grows on Saul's side. I think of Hannah, the barren womb that God opens and brings hopes to Israel through the faithful priest to establish proper worship among God's people. I think of Lazarus, and he is near death, and Christ waits to make sure that he dies. For the purpose of increasing his disciples' faith so that many people would believe in him. You see, none of these are paths that we would have expected. But God is using the life of Moses and David and Lazarus to display his glory. And the reason why you and I and men and women of faith have gone through this before is because God is the great storyteller in our life. And so the first positive fruit of trials is love for God. God answers, he redeems, and the response of the psalmist is, I love the Lord. The Lord loved the psalmist and saved him. And because of that, the psalmist loves him even more. And that's the conclusion. In verse 2, it says, Therefore, I'm going to call out on him as long as I live. And so I want to ask you a few questions as we reflect. Have you seen God doing this in your life? Increasing your love to him towards him through trials. What is your natural reaction to hardships? What is your first action step in trials? You see, the psalmist here, he cried out to the Lord. He understood who he was, that he was simple and in needy of God. What is your natural reaction to hardship? And the third question, what is the orientation of your life? Do you see that God is the great actor in your life? That the purpose of your life is not that God is, would want to increase your comfort, but that God would want to glorify himself through you. And oftentimes that is a life of discomfort because he is molding you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. 
And you see, this is the Lord's prayer when we pray that not our will be done in heaven, but that his will be done on earth. Now, second, the hardships of life remind us of God's character. So first, the hardships of life and trials, they increase our love for God. Second, they remind us of the character of God. You see, trials have this beautiful way, and I say it's a beautiful way, right? A beautiful way of bringing us back to meditate on the character of God, to be acutely aware of his sovereignty, how much we need this in our forgetfulness. And he shares three characteristics here in verse 5. He says, gracious is the Lord and righteous, and our God is merciful. The things that we would actually need to hear in the midst of the trial, would we not? Wouldn't we want to hear and need to hear that God is gracious, that God is just, that God is merciful? God is gracious. He is one who has pity. That's what the translation of this word means. So he is exulting in God's character, saying, Lord, thank you for looking down upon me out of only one person of billions of people in this world, and you are having pity and being gracious to me. In my family, in my specific situation, when I'm just one person in one small household, in one city, in one state, in one country, on one continent, in one world, in just one universe. Like Pastor Rod so beautifully did a couple of months back, we had to close our eyes and just imagine how small we are. And God takes care of us. He has pity and looks down upon us. The second characteristic that the psalmist brings up is that the Lord is righteous. The Lord is just. Yes, David was being mistreated wrongly. Yes, Moses was having hard times. But God is just. This is a thing that we question when in trials. But here, it's justice that saves the one who is oppressed. The Lord knows. The Lord knows exactly what we're going through. The Lord knows how to help us. And He is merciful. He is faithful. He is never failing. And notice that he is our God. The psalmist says, our God. He's speaking to the great congregation, the people that have gathered. He says, it's, he is our God. So he's proclaiming this goodness about God. In verse 7, we see God's character, that he is going to deal bountifully. That is his character on display. So trials and hardships have a beautiful way of bringing us back to meditate on the character of God. But trials and hardships also have a way of not only bringing us to meditate on God's character, but to bring us into God's presence. And this is the ultimate goal, is it not? God wants us to have a relationship with Him. He created us for this purpose. This is why our, our life doesn't find fulfillment or satisfaction unless it's found in the relationship with God, for He created us for Himself. And our hearts are restless until we find rest in Him. And so the psalmist here in verse 7 says, Return, O my soul, to your rest. Where is this place of rest for the psalmist? It is in the presence of God. Rest is pictured as still waters, as the green pastures of Psalm 23. And I want you to notice that the psalmist is not quiet during this time. Friends, we, we cannot be quiet during the times of hardship in our life. The psalmist is preaching and speaking to himself. He is saying, return, O my soul, to your rest. Because either you're going to be preaching to yourself the truth of God's word, 
God's gracious character, or you're going to be listening to yourself how bad the situation is. And so the psalmist wants to come back into the presence of God. As believers on this side of the cross, we understand that ultimate rest is found in Christ alone. We all know the well-known verse where Christ says, Come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is not escape from the battle, but it is an abiding peace and confidence in the midst of the trial. I'm going to say it again. It's not escape from the trial, but it is an abiding peace and confidence in the midst of the trial. And so as we continue looking at the psalm, why does he pray? We already touched base on this a little bit, but I want to emphasize once again in verse 6, the reason why the psalmist prays is he understands his state. The Lord preserves the simple. One of the key ideas in regards to prayer is humility. It's an understanding that I need God every hour. Every hour I need Thee. Every day I need Him. Every week I need Him. Every moment I need Him. I need to be in a constant conversation with God. Because when I'm holding my child in the carrier and my other two children are fighting and I have the white noise playing so this child doesn't, doesn't wake up, I am praying to the Lord, Lord, can you please resolve this? Or where is Anna? Can you please bring her here? <laughs> there are moments in our life where we just are praying because we have nothing, we cannot do anything else in that circumstance and in that situation. But it is, we must first understand that it is because we are simple. We are inexperienced. We are untried. We are weak and frail. In other words, if you were to rewrite this verse, you would say the Lord protects those who cannot help themselves. Humility is the first step, but it goes hand in hand with faith, does it not? The reason why your children believe everything that you say because they have a childlike faith, because they are simple. And so they believe. Spurgeon writes, does not, do not mothers always take care most for the tiniest child or for one which is most sick? And is it not true that our weakness holds God's strength and leads him to bow his omnipotence to our rescue? God hears the smallest, the tiniest, the weakest child when we are most sick. And God preserves us because we commit ourselves to him and, no, and put no confidence in our own sufficiency. You see, when he was brought low, when the psalmist was brought low, he, God, saved him. But we are never brought low to such a point that below us, there are no everlasting arms that can uphold us. Even when we are low, there are hands under us that are lifting us up. Those who are sustained are those who cannot sink. And so the psalmist calls on the name of the Lord. He calls on his character. He doesn't lean on his own sufficiency. And I think about this in my life as I continue to live this reality that Christ is not glorified when I do not come to him in prayer. Christ is not glorified and I am a glory robber when I do not pray. Because if I try to figure out the situation on my own, if I lean on my own strength and my own understanding, who gets the glory when there is a solution if it ever comes? And it often doesn't come 
in, the, in such an easy way or in the always right ways, it comes half, half cooked. <laughs> I wish I had prayed. God gets the glory when we pray to Him. See, this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, he's crying out to the Lord. And we must take note here, the detail. He only cried out to the Lord three times. And after the third time, he stopped. He said, Lord, why? Because your grace is sufficient for me. Lord, I have this issue. I cried out to you three times. You didn't answer. I understand now that I need to just walk in the grace that you provide every day. And this is what I have. And this is what you've given me, and you're going to give me strength to press on. Because Christ lives within us. We sing the hymn, in Christ alone, my hope is found. In Christ. In Christ, one of the most beautiful two words put together in the New Testament. And in Ephesians, used over 200 times, we are in Christ. That is our union with him. Because of that, we are adequate for the demands of life. And so we see the same cycle in this psalm. The hardships come because of life. Prayer comes because we understand our state and God answers because of his character. Now, his character is not inseparable from his work. And why so? Because God, who, because God is who he is, he does what he does. So God is gracious, he's righteous and merciful, as verse 5 states here. And we were made in his image, and we reflect certain of those things. But the question becomes, why don't we always desire, why don't we always do what we desire? Why is it when we want to be gracious, we're not always? When we want to be right or just, we're not always. Or merciful, we're not always. It is because we're limited. It is because we are not omnipotent. We have barriers. We lack strength. But you see, God is gracious. He is righteous. And he is merciful. And there's nothing standing in God's way because he is also all-powerful. Which, man, which means that his plans cannot be thwarted. And so God always acts in alignment with his character because there's nothing stopping God moving from his character to his work. And this is why in verse 8, we get to the third point. How did God deal bountifully with him? How was God's character on display? Well, it was the work of God. And so trials, they increase our love for God. They remind us of the character of God. And third, trials display the work of God. To display his glory. Lazarus, come out. Dead man is raised. God's glory is visible, many people believe. God's glory is on display. There's three things that we see that the Lord saved him from. You see, these are the things that he talks about, how God has dealt bountifully with him. And these three cover a variety of circumstances. He speaks of the soul, the eyes, and the feet. You have delivered my soul from death. You have my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. To a certain degree, this is an invitation of the psalmist to apply this psalm more generally to different and various experiences of need. And you may find yourself this morning somewhere between one of these three, whether that is your soul, your eyes, or your feet. For more so, this Psalm, or the way that this is written, it's poetry. And so in poetry, the idea is that you just restate the same idea multiple times so that people can 
get the point. The same idea of he delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling is simply saying the Lord saved me. Just doing so in more of an illustration. And so God saved him from death, which is life. He was in physical hardship, and God saved him from that. From tears, emotional needs. God wiped away his tears. From stumbling, directional needs. He held him up and prevented him from stumbling. He walked with him to protect him from his enemies. And so the point is simply this. When God saves, God saves completely. When God saves, God saves completely. Never partially, never 50%. He saves all the way. When God intervenes, it is finished. (laughs) Amen? That is so good to know. In Jude 24, one of my favorite doxologies or closings of any chapter in the New Testament is, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to him be the glory. Now, I want you to see that this is not where it stops. Yes, he speaks about the bountiful work of God, but it doesn't just stop with deliverance, and this is key. I think this is very important for us to see that this is not where it ends. The trial, the hardship of life, is leading the psalmist to a resolve. He is making good use of his deliverance. Look at verse 9. What does it lead the psalmist to? In verse 9, he says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. He does not just say, thank you, Lord. Now I'm going to move on in my life to continue my career, my parenting, my spousing, my fill in the blank. I thank you that you've saved me. Now it's time for me to continue on in my life. That's not what the psalmist does. The psalmist makes a resolve. He says, I will move on into these things, into parenting, career, into teaching, spousing, work, whatever, with a fresh resolve because of what you have done. I will move on to live my life conscious of your will and of your presence. And this is what it means to walk before the Lord. I'll walk before the Lord, meaning I will walk in love and faith and obedience to you. You see, walking with the Lord is an Old Testament term that's used to describe the believer's relationship with God. Just someone who's walking. Just like when you go out on a walk, you know, I'm not, I don't walk out of my house and I say, okay, kids, I'm going to go for a walk. I'll see you later. <laughs> right? In the walk that we're going to go on, our evening walk, to try to get the most energy out of them before the bedtime, which is a two-hour struggle and warfare, right? I say, come along with me, please. <laughs> and let's, let's dash up and down the street. Ten, you know, 100-meter runs, all right? Let's, let's get it all out, right? It's walking. When I say my family walks with me or lives with me, this is the same interchangeable word. That means we eat meals together. We go to parks together. We go to church together. We go to community home groups together. We live life together. We laugh together. We have sorrows together. We do family worship together. To walk with the Lord, meaning it's a life of living with God in every moment of life. 
And so I believe God helps us to come out of trials in a meditative state, asking, Lord, what were you trying to teach me? Lord, what were you trying to purge out of my life? Lord, how can I be more aware of your presence? And you see the New Testament authors, they saw this. And so looking forward, James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You see, he saw the big picture of what trials could accomplish in his life. He says, for you know, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We sing that in the first song. His steadfast love will keep me. It's guiding me. Right? Produces steadfastness. How many of us want to be just tossed around by the storms of life? Not many of us. We, want, we would want to be standing firm in Christ and have a solid foundation. Well, then what we need to do, when joys come, we receive it. When trials come, we receive it with joy. Peter echoes this, and he says, in this, meaning in this salvation that is going to be revealed in the last time, you rejoice for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that you may know that you are a child of God. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Christ. And so although he is making a resolve, although he's saying, I will walk before the Lord, the reality is that it was not always like this. It was not always like this. There's a moment of desperation, and this is common in trials, and that's what we see in verse 10 and 11, where he says, I believed when I spoke, I'm greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Despair leads us to say things that we shouldn't. Despair leads us to think things that we shouldn't. Despair leads us to act in ways that we should not. I believe when I spoke, I'm greatly afflicted. In other words, I believe there was no hope. I believe there was no light at the end of this dark, long, dark tunnel. And I said in my panic, because the waves were all around me like a Peter situation, <laughs> and he was just looking around at the storms of life, he said in his panic, all mankind are liars. Even the so-called friends that I had, no one can be trusted. I'm alone by myself. They've all forsaken me. But God is so good in that he sees our hearts and he knows what we really believe, even though sometimes the words that we say are not in congruence with the heart that which we believe with. There are times that I say things in the midst of a trial, in the midst of despair, that I have to repent of. Lord, I, I didn't mean it. I did it, it just, it was the panic. It was the overwhelm. I thought there was no end to this. But God knows our hearts, and he loves us. He loves us so much that he is faithful to us, to mold Christ in us, and he will continue to come alongside of us as a good shepherd. And so a couple of reflective questions. What is your attitude when trials come? What is your attitude when trials come? Do you see the bigger picture or are you stuck in your situation? There's a bigger picture here. There's a greater actor. And so remember, 
If you look vertically, you're going to have a lot of hope. If you look vertically to the Lord and to Christ who's at the right hand of the Father and walk in the power of the Spirit, you're going to have a lot of hope. But if you're going to begin to look horizontally, if you're going to find yourself spending a lot of time on Instagram or Facebook or looking at and analyzing and comparing your life with people in church or someone's home or their possessions, it might lead you to despair. And second reflective question, when God delivers, do you resolve to walk closer with him? When God delivers, do you make a resolve to walk closer with him? Do you say, Lord, I understand why you are putting me through this. I see that I've been leaning a little bit too much the wrong way. And now I resolve to walk back on the straight path. Or maybe you are walking on the straight path and the trial and hardships come. And you're saying, Lord, I resolve to know you more through this time that I'm going through. And so this leads us to the main question in the psalm. What shall I render? What should I repay to the Lord for all his benefits to me? You see, this is a question of a contemplative person. Someone who took time to analyze the situation that they were in. Someone whose heart exploded with gratitude once they remembered, once they meditated on the person and the work of God. You see, this is where you reach the mountaintop after the valley that you were in. Do you recall where, do you recall where worship begins? As we thought about it this past month, worship begins with remembering. Remembering the person and the work of God, His goodness and His greatness leading us to submission to the Lordship of Christ, ultimately then leading us to service in the body and family life through evangelism, missions, and so forth. And so we come to the last part of the cycle. The hardship of life leads us to prayer because of our states, leads us to answer because of God's character, and lastly leads us to thanksgiving because of God's acting. And so finally, trials produce thanksgiving to God. They produce thanksgiving. And this is where the psalm culminates. And once again, I want to turn your attention to the fact that this is public. These are all acts of public worship in the presence of all the people, it's stated two times. And in verse 19, in the courts of the house of the Lord. The assumption is that your personal thanks is going to be shared in public worship. This is a benefit to the whole people, the entire congregation, when you come together. I just want to look at a psalm as a reference to this. Psalm 40, I want to just read a couple verses. The psalmist says the same idea. He says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So you come together tonight to home group at 6 o'clock at the Prince home. And you come together and there's a time to share while you are eating dinner and you're munching on some nice KFC or a cake because you've already had dinner. And you are doing what? You are sharing God's faithfulness. You are sharing what God is doing, how he has brought you through this week. Maybe something that happened yesterday. Maybe it's a season of three months that have been going on and the Lord has been bringing you up to the mountaintops from the valleys. And this builds faith. Because let me tell you, there's other people that are going to be there tonight and every other time when the church gathers 
who are going through some kind of hardship or trial in their life, and they need to hear that God has already brought you through it. They need to hear that God's been faithful to you. They need to hear about the goodness and the greatness of God. We need to hear that our kids are sleeping better. My wife can finally sleep for four-hour stretches at night after seven months. They need to hear how you shared the gospel with a coworker, and now they're asking more about the Christian faith. They need to hear about God is, how God is opening a, a door for a new job or how the wayward son or daughter just called the other day and is beginning to think about God more. They need to hear about the health that's returned or God who protected you from an accident or how God brought you through a season of darkness and now has placed you on a solid rock. How he stopped the dry spell of your walk and brought you into more vibrant living to the green pastures and the living water. But to share, before you even get to sharing, you must first be aware. You must first meditate. You see, oftentimes, when it comes down to let's pause and let's think about sharing what the Lord has done in our life, it's hard to share because we're not aware. We begin and end our day with the busyness of life, but do we ask the question, Lord, how did you get me through this? How are you faithful to me this day? How are you faithful to me this month? What did you teach me this past week? Awareness of his presence. And so the question, what shall I repay to the Lord, is a good one. It's not repayment like we can ever repay God, but it's a desire to please God and thank God. He's saying, my cup is overflowing. And every time I'm walking around and I bump somebody, I am sharing and proclaiming how good you are. And so here are the things that the psalmist does. This is what he shares. There's, a three, there's three things. He expresses thanksgiving. He says, I lift up the cup of salvation, which can also be translated as the cup of victory. And in verse 13, this refers to a wine offering, which was part of a ritual of thanksgiving. This was a way of expressing thanks for the blessings that come through salvation. Another way of saying it is, I will confess it before the assembly. I will raise the goblet in order to thank him. I will make it public and make it known. So an expression of thanksgiving. Then he also shares a prayer of praise. He calls on the name of the Lord in the second half of verse 13. It refers to a prayer that's part of public worship. He publicly prays and thanks God for the deliverance. And third, he offers sacrifices. He pays vows in verse 14 and verse 18. Pays vows and offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Paying vows is, in our English, sounds a little weird, so it's more of the idea of offering the sacrifices that you promised to make. Offering sacrifices that you promised to make is paying vows. And thank offerings are a variety of peace offerings that celebrate God's answer to prayer. And so the psalmist has an expression of thanksgiving, a prayer of praise, and an offering of sacrifices. And here we see the heart of God in verse 15. Why is God doing all of this? Why is God leading the psalmist through this? Why did God deliver him? In verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The Lord is not indifferent to whether or not his faithful servants are killed. It costs the Lord to see his faithful ones die, so therefore he hastens to protect them. You see, for us as 
believers, death is not an accident, but death is an appointment. If the father pays so close attention to the birds of the air and every sparrow, surely he's going to be concerned about the death of his saints. And so we are under his watch until our work on earth is done. We cry out and pray, and he delivers. He, we cry out and pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, and he is faithful so that we can continue to do his work on earth, that we can continue to be involved in evangelism, missions, the great commissions, in parenting and making disciples in the home and outside of the home, in sharing our knowledge and the wisdom and life that God has given, to, given us as seasoned men and women of the faith with those who are just beginning. Your work on earth is not done, and so the Lord continues to give you life. So what does Thanksgiving produce? causes God to be glorified, and causes people to be encouraged. God gets the glory. In the midst, if we had someone right now stand up and say, the Lord, the Lord has delivered me from this or that situation. The Lord answered my prayer. What do we all say? Amen. Glory be to God alone. It was only him. And then the rest of us, as we listen to those words, we're encouraged. And we say, God did that in your life? I'm going through the same thing. God, you, I'm waiting. I'm going to be patient and trust in your sufficiency. And so this morning, we spoke on this idea of from trials to thanksgiving, what you don't expect hardships to accomplish. Not only does life not go as we expect, but trials produce in us something we don't expect either. You see, life is like a map. There are favorite places that I enjoy going to. Half Moon Bay, Monterey, Lake Tahoe, Napa. Santa Barbara and L.A. are a little too far. If you enjoy those, you can enjoy them. I enjoy these places because they're places where you can drive out of the seven plus million people that live in the Bay Area and show up on a beach in Half Moon Bay and you'll be the only person there. And you're going to feel like you're in Sweden or something. <laughs> and so you take your phone and you put in the directions and the map and the point of a map is to get you from your starting point to the destination. And you've been to these places multiple times. It's not like it's your first time. But you put the directions in the map and you start driving. And you're going, okay, it's going to take me 55 minutes. And then you look and GPS says hour 10. And you look, oh, car accident. Okay. All right. I'll listen to kids scream a little longer. All right. And you keep driving. And then, okay, because of the accident, the freeway actually closed. So now you need to take a detour. And you need to go down. <laughs> On the, on the 84 instead of the 92. Okay, another 30 minutes. Do we turn around and go home or do we still go to our destination? You see, this is what life is like. We know, you know where you are right now and you know where the destination is that's ultimately to be with Christ. But the route is different because of traffic or an accident, because of things that we didn't expect to come in life. And trials, they, they do the same thing. This is what they do. This is what God did with Israel 40 years in the desert when there's a straight and direct path and God was moving them in a different way. And so I pray that your love for God may increase through the trials that you experience, that you may be reminded of God's character, that you may, dis that you may think in, as he displays his work and that you may thank him. Now in summary, I have some final thoughts that are going to help us navigate. Just three closing thoughts. Just to remind you, remember God is the great actor. This is the very first thing you should always remember. God is the great actor in your life. 
Instead of doubting, be trusting. Instead of doubting, be trusting. Second, trust that you are the blessed beneficiary. Trust that you are the blessed beneficiary. Sometimes I don't want to trust and believe that this is is somehow going to benefit me in my life. So instead of complaining, be grateful. Count it all joy. You see, contentment is that sweet, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise, fatherly disposal in every situation of life. So that inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit you submit and you delight in, and instead of complaining, you're grateful because you are going to be benefiting through this. And lastly, proclaim so that the church is the encouraged body. Proclaim so that the church is the encouraged body, that the church is constantly uplifted, that you stir up one another to love and good works. And so instead of discouraging others with your hardships, be encouraging. Instead of sharing all the negativity of your week, please be encouraging. Yes, you can share the hardship, but let that be a moment compared to the encouragement that the other person is going to share with you. Now, thinking back to Moses, David, Hannah, and Lazarus, we find someone, who, someone else who walked on this path, the path of uncertainty, the path through mysterious ways, and that is Christ himself. I mean, think about the gospel. How is God going to liberate and save humanity? How is freedom going to come from bondage to sin? How is the Father's plan going to unfold? How are sinners going to be reconciled? How is a chasm in the fall of Genesis 3 going to be bridged? Christ is the light of the world. He comes into this world and he is rejected. He is not the one the Jews were expecting to come onto the scene. The plan seems to not be working. The disciples are just not understanding. And even at the end of year three, coming to the place of his suffering and crucifixion, three times he has to explain to them, what is about to happen, and on the third time, they begin arguing among themselves who is the greatest. Where would you be in that situation after three years of discipling somebody? (laughs) But it was just not yet the hour of his coming. But here comes the hour of the glorification. But how will he be glorified? It's the unexpected path through horrible crucifixion. The king of glory becomes the man of sorrows. He is beaten, he's mocked, he's scorned, and then crucified on the cross. And hanging on that cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he cries out on that cross, it is finished. No one expected this. They were all heartbroken after he died on the cross. All the disciples We're going to go back fishing, says Peter. But Christ is raised from the grave for our justification. The pathway was different than man would have expected. God knew it all along. But the goal was the same. It was salvation. Salvation that all of us can receive. There was no other path because the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so as you walk, In life, remember this, God is the great actor. Christ is the great example of one who already walked this path. He is your elder brother. 
And so if your hands are drooping and if your knees are weak, as Hebrews would tell us, look to Christ. He is your sufficient Savior. We can summarize all of Hebrews with this phrase, press on, Christ is better. I want to close with the words of the song, God Moves. And hopefully after this message, they resonate even more. Listen to these words. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are so good and kind to us. We thank you for your word that reminds us and how often we need these reminders that you are the great actor in our life, that you are producing something in us through these trials. Ultimately, it is Christ in us that you're producing and that you would desire for us to be fruitful through these times where we are proclaiming to the great congregation how good you are. This morning as we have gathered, we come to meditate, to remember the cross. We've come to remember the victory of the cross. But before the victory, there was agony, there was suffering, there was pain, and it was all on our behalf. He was crushed for our iniquities, bruised. And so I pray you lift up our gaze now to Christ, our sufficient Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.